Engaging Leader, Episode 112, Are You Fully Charged? Three Keys to Energizing Your Work and Life, featuring Tom Rath. Brought to you by Aspendale Communications, a consulting firm helping mid-size and large employers attract top talent, engage employees, and deliver superior business results. Learn more at AspendaleCommunications.com. Leadership inspire trust, passion, and action. Welcome to the Engaging Leader Podcast with Jesse Leahy, consultant, writer, and speaker. Jesse has helped executives engage hundreds of thousands of people. Join us now for principles to communicate, engage, and lead with greater impact. Welcome to the show, Engagers. Being an engaging leader starts with engaging your own work and life optimally. When you're fully charged, you get more done, your mind is sharp and creative, you feel fully alive, and you are a better leader, parent, spouse, and friend. Now, does that happen by accident, or are there specific actions that create this daily charge? Tom Rath is a research scientist with the Gallup organization who has spent his entire career studying workplace engagement, health, and well-being. He last joined us in Engaging Leader episode 58 to discuss his best-selling book, Eat, Move, Sleep. His newest book is Are You Fully Charged? Three Keys to Energizing Your Work and Life. Tom joins us today to discuss the most proven and practical strategies to help you be fully charged and to help you teach and coach the people you lead to be fully charged too. Tom Rath, welcome back to Engaging Leader. Thanks so much. It's good to talk to you again, Jesse. Tom, Ten years ago, you published an important little book called Wellbeing, which is based on research about life satisfaction. Your new book looks at research on people's daily experience. Why is this a significant difference in focus? Well, you know, I've, I've been studying well-being for many, many years, kind of my background's in studying strengths and well-being and positive psychology. And I guess primarily out of necessity, a lot of us as researchers over the years have asked people really broad questions about. So if you think about your life overall, over 20, 30, 40, 50 years, how would you rate it? And one of the questions people ask is on a ladder with steps numbered one through 10, how would you rate your life overall? And so typically people have stepped back and thought about and reflected on questions like that. And they arrive at an answer that might be based on what's going on today a little bit. It might be based on memories they've clouded over over the last few years, but it's about as good as you can do if you're just surveying people or asking them questions once in a while. But Obviously, in the last 10 years in particular, we've seen this emergence of where now you can just ping people on a handheld device and ask them a question, say, what are you doing at 11.15 this morning? Who are you with? How much do you enjoy it? And then, I mean, better yet, in the last few years, you could tell a lot about my mood and stress and everything else just by looking at passive metrics from wearable things I've got on my person in a given day without even having to ask me a question. So, one thing is measurements just getting that much better where mm. we can be a lot more immediate about saying how we're doing. And as researchers have begun to dive into the research on that topic, what it's uncovering is really surprising to me. It's changed my thinking a lot. And it, it's really encouraging in that, I mean, if you look at those traditional questions of life satisfaction like that ladder, every time you doubled your income, you moved a step up on that ladder roughly. So heavily dependent on income and heavily dependent on living in a wealthy country. So the Swedens and Denmarks were always at the top of the list of the countries with the highest well-being. But when you ask people questions about today or say, what were you doing yesterday and how much did you enjoy it? How was your stress? When you ask people these daily experience questions, it turns out that 
four of the five happiest countries on a daily basis in the world are in the bottom half of the world on GDP per person. <laughs> so, so, and, and you also don't need to make that much money where most of the outcomes of well-being start to flatten out between $40,000 and $75,000 of household income in the U.S. After that point, once you, can, once you can meet your basic needs and not stress about money every day, it's not a differentiator. So what's been encouraging for me in that work is that having really good daily well-being, it doesn't depend on being really wealthy. And you don't have to live in a wealthy country in order to have a chance at being really happy on a day-to-day basis. So your research discovered that more important than those things like how much money you're earning, whether you're in a wealthy country, what's more important are those small, meaningful moments of life. Yeah, and that's, you know, it's been interesting because I guess all the way back to the first book I worked on, How Full Is Your Bucket, that's been a recurring theme where we always knew as my my part teams and partners and researchers and all my colleagues from Gallup, we knew that those moments mattered, but now it's we're doing a much better job of quantifying the degree to which those moments change our days and our ability to make a difference for others throughout the span of a given day. And that's that's where a lot of my most recent research is focused. Huh. Of the three keys to energizing work and life, the first is meaning. What's that about? Well, you know, I was I was kind of skeptical as I started to look at some of this because when I hear <laughs> words like meaning and mission and purpose, they sound so broad and vague and highfalutin that they don't seem very achievable to me. Where, so, so as I started to look at a lot of good research recently from Teresa Amabile and Stephen Kramer, who wrote The Progress Principle and others, it turns out that one of the best predictors of engagement at work and satisfaction with life is making what they called meaningful progress on a day-to-day basis. So it's more about, is there one little thing you did today that helped another human being and made a difference in their lives? And so it's not you don't need to have some grand victory that you remember five or 10 years later. It's about making a little forward progress on a day-to-day basis. And then as I dug even deeper, I mean, when people think about meaning, they often what comes to mind is uh, Viktor Frankl's classic book, Man's Search for Meaning. Right. And I went back and reread that, which I hadn't read since I was in graduate school. And if you go back and look at Frankl's own story, his discoveries on the topic of meaning did not start or stem from his experiences in a concentration camp. That's what brought it to life later on in his life and how he illustrated it in the book. His research on that topic started when he was working with teenagers who were struggling with depression and suicidal thoughts, teenage girls in particular, when they were between the ages of, I think it was 14 and 17. And what he found in his research was they just needed a few small wins and to see how they made meaningful progress in a day in order to be able to pull themselves out of that depression. So it's really consistent with a lot of the work that's out there. I think we just, we need to find ways of making meaning a lot more practical and a lot more granular. And so in the book, I talk, Are You Fully Charged? I talk about how Facebook brings people into their offices so their employees can hear people talk about how the technology has helped them to connect with long lost siblings or friends. And John Deere brings the people who are manufacturing tractors. They, they put them together with farmers who are talking about what a difference it's made and um, bringing their crops together. And it's, it's these little connections. So you know that your day-to-day efforts are helping and bettering the life of another person that really helps most in that regard. So you get a lot of energy what gets you out of bed in the morning is when you feel like you're making a difference in some grander cause where there's meaning. But where you really feel that is if you're making some, if you notice that you're making some forward progress. Yeah, we need to find, we all in our jobs need to not only 
find ways. I think a lot of people probably make meaningful progress for other people in their jobs on a day-to-day basis. But yet when my team just recently asked, uh, I think it was about 10,000 people who in a survey, if they did a lot of meaningful work yesterday, I think it was about 20% that, it, that uh, said they had done quite a bit of meaningful work. And so I think there are probably more people doing meaningful work, but in many cases, they're not recognizing it on a day-to-day basis. So we've got to find ways to remind ourselves that, yes, turn if you're working in a call center and someone calls in and they're, they're so furious, they're at the point where they're, pro- they're saying they're never going to do business with your company again, and you turn that around so they're at least back to neutral and not irate with your company and your brand. You made a difference for that person's daily experience and their well-being, and it made a difference for the company as well. But we need to find ways to help people see that in their work on a more frequent basis. Mm-hmm. There's another idea that you have in the book on this point where you mentioned to encourage people to try working in highly focused bursts, like about 45 minutes or so, and then take a 15-minute break. So similar to an athlete doing high-intensity interval training where they're sprinting and then taking a break, that that works as well in your day-to-day work. Yeah, you know, there's a, there's a lot of good work I've studied recently about suggesting how our, our, the way our brains function, it's not unlike the way our muscles work on a day-to-day basis where if you work your body or your legs really hard running for 45 minutes and you have a break, then you can have, you can get a new burst. It's the same thing applies to our mind and creativity. And we've, we've kind of gotten stuck in this mode where we think that just by slogging through something for three or four hours straight, sitting in a chair that we're, we're going to be able to do our best work. But when you look at, um, academic and more carefully designed studies of elite performers, it turns out they do more often work in bursts and take frequent breaks. And the frequent breaks serve a purpose of just for your physiology. If you get up and move around even a little bit, I'm walking around as we talk right now a little bit, you have more uh, mental acuity and energy and you feel better physically than if you're just consistently sitting down and not taking breaks for two, three hours in a row. Now, the second key to energizing work and life is interactions. Tell us about that. Yeah, you know, of all the things that we are, are quick to take for granted nowadays, I mean, if I if I place an order at a restaurant for lunch today and that person behind the counter is perturbed or in a hurry or frustrated about something, that has a little impact on how I'm doing at the moment. Not Not huge, but it matters. And if someone... If that person had a, had a much more positive approach and was a really good interaction, then that adds to how you're doing throughout the day as well. But we take we take those little things for granted. We even take for granted our interactions with our closest friends and loved ones and family members and colleagues. But the more that scientists have studied that over the years, it turns out that the problem is bad moments count a lot more than good ones. So if you have one really negative experience, you need at least three, four, five positives just to get back to ground level. Hmm. So we've got to think about in the balance of a day, how do you have, in the book I talk about, at least 80% of your interactions are more positive than negative. Because if you fall below that line, you're going to have more stress and much lower levels of positive emotions and lower creativity and so forth throughout the day. And it's also, I and mean, there's some studies showing it's not good for the business either. If you have work teams where they've got uh, fewer than three positives for every one negative. One of the 
key points that you make in the book about putting this key into action, I have already shared with several people over the last couple of weeks since I read it. It's this idea of using your phone only when you're alone. Can you tell us about that idea? Yeah, you know, it's it's something that I've thought a lot about lately and been kind of passionate about. And there's a study we have in the book. It's, the average person unlocks their smartphone more than 100 times a day. And <laughs> if you think how, I mean, think about time where hopefully not doing when you're driving, but if when you're with loved ones or friends or in meetings, we've kind of uh, grown so attached to checking our devices that we often put that in front of the people who are in the room. And so what was fascinating to me was some of the work about how if I have a phone and it, let's say it's just, a, I have the new jumbo iPhone, it's uncomfortable in my pocket. So I set it on the table mm-hmm. and that's sitting there face down. I'm not looking at the notifications. I'm just looking at people in the room. They think less of me and we all have a poor conversation because the phone happens to be sitting there on the table because it sends a message to the other people in the room that I put, the priority of my phone being available and accessible ahead of the person. So that's what's fascinating to me is it's not even about the actual usage and ignoring of people. It's nowadays we've grown so accustomed to it that it sends a message that you don't matter and that you're more important than other people in the room. And so I do think whether I've tried to be very conscious about this with kids, but I have kids that are four and six and even and just as conscious when I'm in meetings with people or at dinner that unless there's an absolute emergency that, you focus on the people who you decided to spend time with, not what would interrupt you. So the people that you're with should, by definition, be more important than the person who's sending you a text or posting something on Facebook or sending you an email or calling you. Yeah, I mean, basically, a lot of it comes down to if you if you chose to allocate an hour or two to have dinner with someone or 30 minutes to be in a meeting with someone, you honor that time instead of honoring every request that comes in and breaks up and fragments and ruins that time. So yeah, that, that study you mentioned that from 2014, the iPhone effect, the mere presence of a smartphone can ruin a conversation. I would say I've, that's played out in life with me. I, or, and I remember um, I had gotten for a long time into a habit, which I thought was a good habit, of taking meeting notes right on my iPad. Uh, I, I had a, an app and a stylus, and so I could just write just like I would on a piece of paper, and then I was paper-free. But then I started noticing that when, that as soon as I started working on my iPad, even though I was fully engaged in the conversation and I was writing down what people are saying, somehow that prompted other people around the table to pull out their smartphones and basically check messages. It was obvious because they were not fully engaged. Their minds were elsewhere and, and all those things that distractions cause in a meeting where people were, were missing the last thing that had set, been said. So I went back to pa- paper and pencil for my notes. Yeah, and I think that's what happens. I mean, there are probably a lot of well-intended early adopters of technology, like I've been over the years, who said, oh, I can pull out my iPad instead of keeping all these messy paper notes as soon as they came out, which I did as well. And But you don't realize that all of a sudden, okay, the iPhone has notifications popping in. It has dings, and it has bells, and it vi- things vibrate. And with all that, you have to make a really conscious effort not to be distracted. It's kind of, this is an interesting aside, but I was reading a, a good article in Wired Magazine this week about how the when Johnny Ive and uh, the guy, the guy that Apple hired from uh, Adobe, Kevin Lynch, that's his name. When they got together and said, "What are we trying to do with this watch thing that's coming out?" They said their their primary design challenge was that we've become too addicted to our smartphones that it's ruining the quality of our interactions and lives. 
And so that was the, the, it sounds like the organizing design principle was how do we get people to take their phone out of their pocket less and unlock their screen fewer times in a given day? Huh. That was the Which, overriding principle for that the, was the, overriding, the, watch, huh? the Apple Watch. Right. So I think I, I do, th- I, I, I've tested a lot of wearable devices, not that one yet, but I think a lot of people are going to be surprised that, I mean, once you think more consciously about which notifications get a subtle tap or a major tap on your wrist, my hunch is from all the early reviews I've read of people who have tested it out in the field, that people who figure out the right way to manage that at least will be able to check their phones and be connected to their screens a lot less than they were before because it helps you to prioritize what should and shouldn't force you to I mean, if you think about what you were just describing, you pull the phone out of your pocket and you think you were going to check a message that's a useless breaking news alert. And then all of a sudden you see something else and you Mm -hmm. do open it for that, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think we've all got to get a lot smarter about that in terms of the flow of our work throughout the day, which is one issue. And the second issue is when you're with people who really deserve your attention, I'm with my uh, six-year-old daughter and she's telling me about what went on at school, there is almost nothing else in the world that should break the flow of that conversation. That's right. So save your smartphone and mobile device for when you're alone. This is all about the second key to energizing work and health, which is interactions. Uh, You want them to be 80% more positive than negative. The third key is energy. Why is it absolutely critical for everyone, especially a leader, to put their personal energy ahead of just about every other priority in life? You know, there's a conventional wisdom that I noticed uh, when I spent time with both leaders in organizations and people like nurses in healthcare and hospice and so forth, who I think are some of the most other-focused and giving people in the world. And the conventional wisdom is that it's best to, if you just keep doing things for other people and put everybody else's needs in front of your own, that's the best way to serve society. And I personally thought that myself. I was one of the first people to say, I need to do all this important work. I need to help someone here and here. And my own health and well-being can wait until tomorrow. But if you really step back and think about it and look at the research on the topic, if you need to be as effective as possible in leading a group of 10 other people at an event or in a meeting at 4 o'clock tomorrow afternoon, you need a good night of sleep. You need some activity. And you need to be moving around throughout the day, not just sitting for an entire day of meetings. And it's where I, I do think leaders in particular in the U.S. and other places I've talked to, they need to do a much better job of setting an example around health and well-being. Because if you have a CEO who's always burning the midnight oil and working till nine o'clock at night and he never takes any time to go move around or work out or exercise during the day, um, and he's always just kind of eating the wrong things because he's at work late, eating out of a vending machine or whatever. Think about the message that sends and the example it sets for hundreds or thousands of employees. And I, I don't think organizations are going to be as effective in fixing this huge epidemic of bad health we have and low energy we have here in the United States if leaders don't figure out how to be much better role models on that topic. As you, we talked about when, when we discussed your previous book, Eat, Move, Sleep, there's this cycle that can either be a virtuous cycle that creates positive energy or one that is harmful. But essentially, on the virtuous side, eating better makes it easier to move and sleep better. Moving more makes it easier to eat and sleep better. If you can just take one positive step in any of those three areas, it's going to give you that much energy so that you can take the next positive step. But it's it's a three-legged stool. They're all important. Yeah, and it's, I think... 
you know, it's easy, especially in the workplace where we kind of figure out about eating a little better and some of the basic tips there that keep you from being wiped out in the afternoon if you eat a lighter lunch and healthier foods and so forth. But the two things we, we miss in the workplace that kind of throw a day off, one is that even if you do exercise 30 minutes, that doesn't counteract sitting down for seven or eight hours like most people do in the span of a commute and a work day. And then organizations and high achievers have been pretty remiss over the years about valuing sleep as well. And, um, you know, I grew up in, I mentioned this earlier, but I grew up in uh, Nebraska in the Midwest. And I mean, I, I thought uh, sleep, if you needed seven or eight hours of sleep, that was just a sign of weakness, mm-hmm. right? And the more mm-hmm. I've studied this research, it, if you need to be really effective tomorrow, the best idea is not to stay up late studying or thinking about something. It's to get a good night's sleep so you can have enough energy and be effective the next day where you're more likely to be active and eat right and so forth. Um, if you put that emphasis on having real high quality sleep, I mean, it's been fun for me to see with my own family and kids where we've kind of made sleep a real important household family value. And instead of it being the first thing we all cut out and boy, does it make a difference when I see my kids kind of, <laughs> Growing up and going to school, my daughter started kindergarten in a culture where they are pretty well rested all the time. Where that, that was the opposite <laughs> of what I was used to. Well, you mentioned in the book research that shows that if you sit at your desk for two hours, that just canceled out the good benefit of exercising for, tw- for 20 or 30 minutes. And you talk about some different ideas in the book about how to turn that around and get more movement throughout the day. The one idea that I, that stood out to me when I read Eat, Move, Sleep a year and a half ago is a walk is the walking desk, a treadmill. And you told me about you actually sort of built your own. I got to ask, is, are you still using that a year and a half later? Every single day that I'm here in D.C. Um, and it's, you know, it's actually, it's to the point where it's so helpful in terms of my health and energy that I, I just feel awful, like like I was hungover back in college or something. Bad bad analogy, but I mean, <laughs> that's how I feel on days when I'm traveling and I can't work at that treadmill desk. So it's once you get used to it, it it is really not a good experience to have to sit and work for a given day. And I'm I don't have as much energy. I feel kind of wiped out by two o'clock. It, it really doesn't work for me. So. I, it's kind of quirky, but I mean, I've even been, there are a few hotel chains that I found a Holiday Inn that did it somewhere that they actually have exercise machines in rooms so you can get work done and do some of that. And I'm hoping that that trend continues to move through workplaces and maybe even hotels at some point, because in the absence of that, I've had to kind of build ad hoc standing desks whenever I'm traveling around, just so I don't have to sit when I'm working on the road. But it's, yeah, that's, I think a lot of people wondered at first, is that sustainable? And the trick with the walking desks or pedaling desks is the hardest part is the first two weeks or the first four weeks, because you got to get used to something new and getting work done while you're sort of in motion. But after that, it's, it's been almost all uphill. And do you use it all day long or is there just for certain types of tasks? Well, it's the, the, what's important for me is that standing or walking is the default. Mm-hmm. So my default, instead of, I mean, 99% of people, the default is to be seated when you do anything. And so my default is standing. And I'd estimate that in a typical work day, I have about 80% of my time where I'm probably 70% walking while I'm working at one and a half, two miles an hour, relatively slow pace. And then maybe five or 10% where I'm pedaling when I'm on a phone call and I don't want the treadmill noise in the background. And then maybe I, it's, I, I track this on a Fitbit. So it's about two hours total of sitting in a given day. My total day is about two and a half, two, two and a half hours. So you, you, I've been able to cut a lot of that down. Wow. 
That that would make a huge difference. And it's, I, I think, I mean, there's a continuum there. I think people need to, at first, just get up every 20 minutes. And it doesn't matter if you just put your hands in there and stand up. That gets blood flow going. It's a big step. And then eventually find a way to do a little work while you're standing. When I'm in my living room upstairs and need to get things done, I have a little standing platform for my laptop so I don't have to fall into that default where you sit down with a laptop and then soon before you realize it, it's 90 minutes later. And you, so you can kind of work the prolonged periods of sitting out of your routine and then think about something more aggressive like pedaling or walking slowly while you're working. Hmm. Now, in addition to the book, you have a documentary movie coming out this year and a children's book. Tell us about those. Yeah, the, the children's book is called The Rechargeables, which should be out uh, late April. And, you know, one of the fun things over the years the first book we worked on, How Full Is Your Bucket, had such good reception, the business book, had such good reception in public schools that we ended up creating an illustrated version called How Full Is Your Bucket for Kids that is now used in school systems all over the country. And I hear more about that than I do about the original book for adults. And just seeing the impact that's had in the conversation had in schools got us thinking after we published the book, Keep, Move, Sleep, about how important that conversation is for young kids. So we've spent quite a bit of time over the last year or two here working on this story called The Rechargeables that talks, that helps kids to see through two characters named Poppy and Simon how they kind of uh, recharge themselves and bring themselves back to life with eating and moving and sleeping, basically. And then the, the back of the book, we've got these big chargeable stickers so kids can identify with the characters and have a big battery indicator they put on their shirts on good days and stuff. <laughs> but there are all these little fun things we built in, kind of like we did with the um, How Full Is Your Bucket for Kids book to, I mean, really start a conversation with kids between the ages. That's for roughly, uh, let's say, four to eight-year-olds on these topics. And then the the documentary is a, a new project where a guy who uh, used to be a executive producer at CNN came to us after the after he read the book Keep Move Sleep and wanted to put together a documentary on this on those topics and we broadened it to the focus of Are You Fully Charged and interviewed some of the world's leading experts on so like on social networks uh, we've got a lot of good pieces in this documentary from Nicholas Christakis who's done all the pioneering work on how obesity and well-being and everything spreads from not only first and secondary connections, but to friends of friends of friends. And so we've got him on there and Brian Wansink, who's probably my favorite expert on behavioral health and food choices and so forth. And we've got Amy Wazweski from, uh, uh, she's at Yale now, who's done all the pioneering work on meaning and how intrinsic motivations are so important in isolation without any extrinsic pieces. And in the Army Surgeon General talking about how soldiers need sleep so that they have the bullets for their brain when they're in the battlefield, as she calls it. So it, it brings together a lot of these kind of both academic experts and people thinking about these things in the real world. And basically, our goal there was to figure out, we've done a lot of work on books for non nonfiction business books and books for kids over the years, but there's obviously a whole group of people that just doesn't read a lot of nonfiction. Mm-hmm. And so we sat around and asked the question, well, how do we how do we reach people that might not be as boring as I am and just sit around and read nonfiction all the time? <laughs> and now in the documentaries, the product of that. Well, where can people find out more about what your your work you're doing and stay on top of when the the documentary comes out and when you and get their hands on the books when they come out? Yeah, there's a there's a trailer of the documentary up and a lot of information on the two new books at tomrath.org is kind of the best home for things, and so I'd encourage people to. Check things out there. 
Fantastic. Well, the book again is Are You Fully Charged? Three Keys to Energizing Your Work and Life. Tom Rath, thank you for joining us on Engaging Leader. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. All right, Engagers, get your hands on the book for many more proven tips about meaning, interactions, and energy to help you and your team get fully charged. We'll provide links to Tom's book, website, and social media on our show notes for this episode, which you can find at engagingleader.com forward slash 112 as in episode 112. This is a production of Aspendale Communications, a consulting firm where my colleagues and I partner with midsize and large employers to attract top talent, engage employees, and deliver superior business results. Find out more at AspendaleCommunications.com. Our thanks to Joe Sherwood, our producer, Tom Hitchcock, our programming director, James Marler, our sound engineer, Cliff Ravenscraft, our podcasting advisor, Dustin Hartzler, our website engineer, J.J. Leahy, our video and web intern, Rick Tarrant, our announcer, and Max Brody, who composed our theme music. Until next time, remember, you are always communicating and leading. Let's make the most of each opportunity to engage the people we care about. 